Influencers, inspiration, and Instagram, Instagram, Instagram. This is Earned by Tribe Dynamics. Here's Connor Begley. Um, welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining. Um, as you can tell, we're all doing our best in this COVID world. You've got me outside. I apologize if you hear a bird or two in the background or a truck in the far distance, um, but we'll try to edit it out as best we can. Um, but the reason I am, we are doing this today is we have an amazing guest. Our guest is Aurelian Liss, from, uh, who is the CEO of Dermalogica. He has an incredible background as well as being, uh, they've made quite the progress when it comes to social data and specifically as measured by EMV. So I would, I would do these off of memory, but there's so many of your accomplishments. I'm going to have to read for a second here. So You're being way too kind for me at the start of this interview, but thank you. <laughs> no, 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 no. So I'm going to go through it. So, um, so he did his undergrad at the University of Oxford in physics and got his MBA at INSEAD. I believe that's how I pronounce it. INSEAD. INSEAD. Okay. Uh, which is the number one MBA program globally, according to the Financial Times, um, at least in 2016, 2017, in that range. You also built and sold your own company, which is an amazing experience. You were right in the middle of the dot-com boom and bust from 99 through 2001, and specifically in the e-commerce space. Hopefully more boom than bust, but yes, <laughs> yeah, it was a bubble. It was a bubble. <laughs> yeah, and then, so, there's so many of them. And then you came on as a GM of Benefit after that. Um, and tripled the revenue of benefit or quadrupled the revenue somewhere in that range um, mm -hmm. in the Americas. And then finally became the CEO of Dermalogica, where you have a 95% approval rating on Glassdoor, which is quite good. Um, yeah, small, small sample size. We won't give you too much credit, you know, but uh, <laughs> pretty, pretty good numbers. Um, and then on the EMV side, obviously, you guys made a lot of progress. Um, so the, you know, US, Australia, and the UK, you're plus 23%, 22%, and 61% respectively, and have grown from a ranking of 19 up to a ranking of 13 as of Q1 of this year in the US, which is really exciting. Um, 12 more places to go. <laughs> and finally, uh, you know, I think you've got some of the best hair in the industry, uh, which is, you know, you know I, I can't say the same. So my, although mine is heading, uh, it's heading the same color direction for sure. So. <laughs> Um, so thank you so much for joining, Raleigh, and we really appreciate it. Oh, look, I, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here. And, you know, it's been a number of years we've been working with Tribe. And so, um, you know, it's been interesting because you guys have been a good partner on this, you know, journey as we try to sort of make sense of a world which is a bit difficult and is rapidly changing. So good. Good to Absolutely. be here. And, um, you know, obviously, uh, everybody's going through, you know, a lot of changes right now. How are you doing personally? Is everything going all right? Um, are you, where are you located? Are you in LA right now? Well, you can see from my backdrop, right? I'm actually on SpaceX. I'm talking to you like <laughs> from above there somewhere. That's, that's now the, um, I'm in Venice. Uh, so, you know, we're quite fortunate, you know, in a small house with a small garden and with, you know, with my two with my family, my wife and two young kids, uh, a two-year-old and a five-year-old. So we're, um, you know, but it is a time of sort of rapid change, right? And everybody, I think especially now, you know, we're talking um, basically a week after the George Floyd murder and absolutely everybody, you know, like there was this, all this optimism that we were finally going to be able to get out of COVID. And, and I think for a lot of people in the community and our company and in the you know that's been shattered and and you know that together with a really disappointing um 
you know, just all the hardship that so many people are facing and then actually having to own up to our own mistakes all at the same time. I think for the organization, it's been a lot. Having said that, it's at times like this that I think, you know, you stay true to who you are. Um, it's always about the game plan, right? It's sort of like if you have a game plan, well, as somebody said, yeah, everybody's got a game plan to get smacked in the face, but, you know, Mike Tyson. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's a, but if you have a, if you do have a game plan, if you do know where you're going to go, if you know what you really stand for, then you can sort of like look at what's happening around you and say, okay, what am I going to take in? What am I going to adapt? But I'm not doing, I'm trying not to do U-turns all the time and, you know, 180 degree turns and sort of trying to, because that is just bewildering and difficult for everybody, for the family and for, you know, and for the company. So, you know, trying to stay on a course, which is authentic, is really what we're trying to do. And hopefully in some ways we've succeeded and we've done some good things and some things, you know, just haven't worked out, which is fine as well. Yeah, when you say things haven't worked out, what are some of the things that didn't, didn't go according to plan? Well, look, I think, you know, there's this, you know, there's this idea that, like an entire organization can pivot on a dime, right? And, you know, so, yeah, we pivot. And so people, you know, start to do new things. And some of the new things they do are absolutely spectacular. Um, and I'm impressed by the fact that we do them. But sometimes, you know, sometimes in retrospect, you say, like, you know, that didn't make sense. So, you know, a, a small example, but like there was a group of people in the company who you know, put a lot of effort into getting our live chat to have a video feed so that people mm. could have a live video chat, not like, sounded like a great idea at COVID, right? So you actually launch it and realize that, you know, only three out of 100 people want to have video on their live chat uh, when they're on a website. So, you know, the things like that where sometimes, you know, sometimes you make the efforts and, you know, it just turns out that, well, that one wasn't the right effort. Um, sometimes, you know, so I think that would be a good example. Fortunately, you know, there's like, there's so many more things that I'm, that we're celebrating and things that seem to be moving. And usually the progress we make is like in steps, right? It's sort of, especially our response to this whole pandemic, it was very much, you know, first take care of your people. Um, and we did that internally. Um, you know, we made sure that everybody knew that they were going to keep their pay um, throughout the closures. Um, and then we also made it clear that we didn't want to take any government money um, anywhere in the world. And, because we felt that that needed to be there for our small businesses and for our clients. So, so that was the first step. And then very quickly, we sort of said, okay, we need the science behind this. We really are talking about something we don't. So there was a you know, webinar with an epidemiologist, which was very powerful, and it continued to go like that. So I think there's been a lot of examples for example, over the, um, you know, how you, you, know, you move a step further. And then there's another step. And actually where we've ended up is a place that like 10 weeks ago, nobody would have nobody would have been able to predict <laughs> it's no. and both from the society, but also as a company, you know, we launched something called clean touch certification, which without those first steps happening, we would never have done that. That's basically an enhanced way to stay safe when you're doing treatment. We thought maybe a couple of thousand people would enroll in our class and pledge for our principles. But in the last three weeks, we've had 30,000 people get into this class and it's sort of blown us away, right? So it means like a whole new thing to do now. Mm -hmm. But it's great. And it's, that's, I think, what progress is, right? Sort of moving forward and then only seeing, only seeing the new horizon once you've made the first steps. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to continually test, right? So continue to test, find what works, and then you know, invest in what works. 
similarly for us, you know, we had historically done a lot of in-person events. Like that was one of our big marketing channels. And so, you know, you go to a world where in-person events just aren't a thing anymore. And how do you adapt? And so we ended up doing a virtual conference and it was cool. Like what you realize is doing this virtual conference, one, you can get the best speakers because they don't have to fly in. They don't have to be in LA or New York or Paris. Um, So you can get the best speakers possible Two, anybody can attend across the world. So it doesn't have to be something that is solely available to a people in a specific location or with a means in which to fly out and visit that location. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, a typical event, we'd have two, 300 people. And, you know, this one we had, we had over 3,500 sessions, individual sessions during that time, mm-hmm. which is, you know, really big for a B2B company and That's had um, 36 outside speakers, which was, you know, way more so than we would normally have. Yeah. Well, what I like about what you're saying is you're sort of thinking that, okay, now that I've gone to a different platform, there's some advantages and disadvantages i really have to sort of understand that what i can't do is you know maybe what you know sort of the early fashion companies did when they started streaming their events you know they basically just put a camera at the end of the runway and then everybody had to watch it through you know a a cell phone which was not but eventually they start moving and the same thing you know so for events like you you sound like you moved in and we did find as well you know for a big event we had to do very early on actually just before, it was three days before uh, Safe at Home started, and, but it was a global event. And some of the positives that you just said were true, like a lot more people could be there. But we also said to ourselves, you know what, we can't do the same thing we usually do. So everybody, if you can't get to your point in 15 minutes, yeah, you're going to be cut off, right? <laughs> Presentations yeah. are now only 15 minutes. You can send backup stuff, but you can't be longer. The whole day can only be three hours. Right. Yep. And it's it's not you can't say anymore. It's a 12 hour day or a 10 hour day. And, you know, with two hour breaks in the middle. And those were just small things. And then people start to say, OK, but what can I do, which is different? And, and and that's the exciting thing as well. Right. Using everything in the way that maybe it can be best used. Of course. Well, let's let's get on to the to the kind of meat of the podcast. I'd love to start with your background. So just talk a little bit about kind of where you grew up why you chose the kind or you know how you're you ended up on the path that you did um so i mean starting at the top you know how did you what made you decide to study physics or maybe where did you grow up first and then second you know what made you decide to study physics i read something about an oil rig at one point as an engineer which seems quite a bit different but maybe a little more connected than we think um yeah tell me about that a little bit i yeah you're a very brave man uh to our to our somebody who's essentially Euro trash where they're from because there's going to be a 35 minute <laughs> answer. So I think I'll try and be I'll be kind and, and short. The uh, look, I'm, you know, my parents are uh, my mother's German, my father was born in Poland, but is naturalized British. I'm like was born in London, and so I grew up sort of in this sort of international area in the UK for first eight years, then to Germany. I am half German. My wife's German as well, so I got a lot of tie into that country and. Um, and then study, yeah, I did. You know, studied physics at Oxford, which was a pretty interesting uh, time. It was atomic physics and laser optics. I thought there was never anything I was going to do with any of this because, you know, atom bombs are things of the past. And and you know, it turned out actually that in skincare, lasers are actually quite useful. So being being able to build your own one isn't very useful, but understanding some of the what we're doing is. is um, I really like the science, and I like the idea. Physics is beautiful because. What you need to do is you've got this difficult question. You can have to be able to turn it into an exact equation, and then you can solve for the equation. So I remember one of my exam questions or something at one point was something like, 
how much it warmer is you know, is your plot of land because of the radiation from the sun via the moon and it's like you know it's a bit of calculus and stuff like that yeah, but it's yeah, an yeah. equation and there's actually an answer yeah and this idea of actually having an answer i think is a very satisfying thing maybe it's a similar thing you get in sales right it's a you actually get the sale yeah. because somebody says so yes i want to buy your product yes or no it's yeah, definitive yeah. and that's a very rewarding thing for me i find um and so you know that i found was a really exciting thing about uh, physics particularly um you know I, I like I like the science. So, so yeah, my first job was uh, working for a company called Schlumberger. Went off, went, ended up going uh, offshore Bombay and working in a training camp in Egypt during the first Gulf War. So it was a bit um, was a bit of hair raising at some point. Um, mm-hmm. It was a beautiful organization though because it was very local. It was rooted in local communities, um, and in any country you went to, you were more likely to have a local manager. So it wasn't an oil company where all the expats were sent from America, for example, or from Europe. Um, and that teached me to have a sort of deep respect for some of the people I worked for. There was a manager I had at, uh, in Bombay, for example, who had studied at this uh, IIT, which is one of these prestige universities in India. Absolutely. He's probably from a technical like, perspective. the best manager I've ever had. You know? and, well, I mean, if you look at, I mean, you look uh, From a technical the, perspective, but also just. Sorry, go ahead. You go ahead. You know, but also from a people, you know, the way he managed people, like the people, yeah. you know, his, his ability to sort of think ahead is like, wow, you know, as a kid, I was like, oh, that's impressive. No, I was going to say, if you look at the CEOs of a variety of these very large, both technology and non-technology forward companies, a lot of them are coming from those universities in India. I think there's one small town that birthed the CEO of, it was like Microsoft, and like three or four other just massive companies from one small kind of village in India. It's pretty cool to see talent from around the world. And I think having that experience, like you said, of, you know, all these different people. uh, It's a really important thing early in your career as well, especially if you come out of one of these nice universities like Oxford or Ivy League or something, you know, it's it's possible. You can easily be snotty about like, oh my God, you know, I just lived in a universe where we knew everything. And then you sort of, but going out into the field, like literally three months after finishing college and just realizing, yeah, we actually, there's all the rest of the world knows it. And in some <laughs> things they know it so much better than we do. I think it's a humbling thing and it's, it's important. Like, you know, throughout the career is like any, well, through careers and companies. And if you're not humble, actually the, somebody who was very, very good at this was Jean-Andre Ruggio. I don't know. And he was now the chairman, um, head of Sephora US, but he was at Benefit. I don't, you know, one of his key missions was to keep the company benefit hu- humble as it had this meteoric growth. And um, it was very important. It, it is. And it's, it, it's something which is, is, it's probably a success factor that people sometimes underrate. Absolutely. I mean, I think for you, was there, I don't want to focus too much on like something from the very beginning of your career, but like, what was the desire was there a desire to really get far away from home? Like that's a pretty serious jump for someone just no. in their early twenties. No, it was just a, no, I left home when I was 15. So I just turned okay. 16. I moved by myself to Paris, which you know, was a very decadent place to be. I was very lucky to be able to sort of do that. And, um, you know, so I, but I, so I'd left home so early that it, it was more like an evolution of like, okay, 
living living in a different capital isn't a big enough challenge. Let's see if I can live halfway <laughs> across the world as well. <laughs> that's really cool. Well, that's uh, that's I admire people that are able to make those kinds of uh, decisions at that age in particular. Um, so uh, very cool. And then obviously you went back to Inseed, right? Inseed, yeah. Inseed, yeah. Why can't I get that right? Um, so what made you decide to go back and get your MBA? Um, you know, what was the decision-making process there? Yeah, I mean, MBA is a, MBA is a bit a fast way to learn some of the business things, right? Most of the things yeah. you would learn in an MBA, you know, those are things you will pick up in business anyway. So you don't need an MBA by any stretch. Uh, maybe in the field of organizational behavior and in actual pure strategy, there are sort of tools that are hard to pick up in business. Um, but pretty much by and large, you can do it. So it was really a way to sort of fast track that. And, you know, especially when you're coming from a scientific background and you're sort of deciding on, yeah, let's, let's move this slightly more mainstream because I am a bit out on the fringes here um, and yeah. wanting to move back. And that was sort of a good step. And it was actually during that time that, you know, I sort of spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, what's fun, right? Where do you want to be? Do you like, what, what makes, what's your, where's your passion? And, and this idea that like, and I realized that in consumer goods that where people really care about what you sell, it's not true of all consumer goods, um, but in luxury and in skincare, it's so much about your identity that people actually passionately care about it. And you can tell it, you know, you go to a cocktail party and people will ask you and speak to you about 20 minutes. You know, and very briefly, I was in a business which was did fats, oils, and dressings. You know, I had I had about twenty five <laughs> seconds to sort of explain what I did before people's eyes glazed over and they sort of went to look for the buffet. You know, and so <laughs> I wanted something that was something. You know, you write. Let's say you write a booklet as a marketer, or whatever. That somebody actually wants to read that booklet, and that's true. That's true for our brands, right? It's also true for luxury brands, and and there's some other areas like that where that's true as well. Apple has that obviously, and others. Tesla probably, you know, but there's a lot of brands. You know, Clorox. Uh, nobody's reading it. You know, nobody's no. reading anything no. about Clorox in that way. So that's really what sort of then drove that choice. And I was lucky to be able to land a position in. Um, at Elizabeth Arden at the time. And, you know, yep. had a lot to do. It was an exciting time. Uh, ran the duty-free. It was just, it was actually an interesting pipe because the duty-free was ending. So it was like it's um, an ending in the way of uh, inter-European, you know, but before that, it was obvious that when you left the UK, you were eligible for duty-free um, on a flight to Paris. But when people said, hey, actually, it's a common market, um, you know, they sort of said, okay, we yep. might have to get rid of that. So there was a lot of work to get the, comp the company and the business and, and actually the industry on, um, ready to sort of say, what's the new future going to look like? Well, we don't really know if our customers are still going to be interested in what we do. I think, you know, when you are at those, you know, I think that's one of these sort of societal pressures that's led big companies to, to bring purpose into their, the realm of what they do, right? Because the only way Alm and Hammer now can connect to people is actually through purpose, right? They, they actually have to stand for something, start speaking up about it and make sure. And if it's an interesting purpose, actually an authentic and relevant purpose, then maybe people will start communicating and maybe will read their, their literature on it. And, and so it's a sort of a strange thing that purpose is, per, I mean, I'm, you know, thrilled and that, and I think we're all thrilled that purpose has become so important in businesses and, and founder led brands. And, 
But there's two reasons that it got there. One of them was that people just, you know, they woke up and before they started the company, they said, you know, I, I was dreaming about this purpose long before, and that's why I want to create the company to help the purpose. But there's the other one where the company existed and they realized, look, I've got no future unless I get myself a purpose, which is, you know, maybe a bit cynical. <laughs> but, you know, in the end, as long as we all come out of it with a good, solid, authentic, caring mission, I honestly don't care how people got there, right? If Arm and Hammer, you know, Arm and Hammer are doing good things in the world, I'm not quite sure what they're up to, but if they're doing good things in the world, I'm fine. I'm fine. I don't, you know, and I think it's, but it's nice that we've been all pushed in this one direction and it's come together a bit. See, I'd always been toying with the idea of coming to the US because it was always a fascinating thing, you know, and now I'm naturalized and, you know, I've got a US passport and all this and I've been here for 20 years or so. Um, the, um, so there was that as an interesting, but um, essentially it was a new business and it had, it had this unique thing that until then all catalogs had always been geared at, at the parent, you know, the Sears Roebuck catalog. And this was the first catalog that said, hey, why actually, why don't, I, why don't we focus on, on the younger generation and write in a way and create a catalog in a way that they will be interested in? Um, Fortunately, by being quite astute on like actually realizing who the first customers were, we realized it wasn't actually the target group we went after, it wasn't the right target group of Delia's, but it was their younger sisters who were really gung-ho about it. So we really, you know, so it was sort of slightly aspirational in that it was targeted to college students. And then basically most of the customers were like, you know, those, those younger teenagers, let's say it. Um, who everybody until then thought, oh, they're never going to buy anything online. They're never going to buy anything on the catalog. They haven't got access to a credit card. But they were wrong, right? They have total access to their parents' credit card. And they also have, you know, and, and they did it. And, you know, it was incredible where these catalogs would, you know, arrive and, and the kids would take them to school and they would talk about them in school and they'd circle the things they wanted. And, and so that was it. And, and so... In April of 2000, uh, no, sorry, April of 1999, um, together with a, you know, a bunch of people, you know, there was only a small group. There was about 25 people, I think, when the company went public. Um, well, it was the second part of the company. To the internet assets of that company went public, called ITERF. And so I came over for that. It was interesting. You know, it was a small group of people. Okay, okay. Was, um, you know, average age was 25. We had a billion-dollar valuation. I guess we'd be called a unicorn nowadays. I, at those days, you didn't talk about that, but we raised about a hundred and something, hundred ten million dollars, <laughs> and then set out. You know, we only had two yeah. and a half million dollars of revenue, so we set out about you know for building a company, and 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 within eighteen months, we had built about forty million dollars of revenue at that time. So it was a, um, it was good, you know, and sort of my role was as a, uh, the CEO of the commerce and so for, for all the different websites, and um, but we also had a media part of the business, um, you know, which even could have gone further. The, the thing I had to say about the CEO at the time, Steve Kahn, who, um, who I'd also, uh, I'd known he was a graduate student in Oxford when I was there. Um, he was very, very good at reading the market and realizing that the world was going to change again. So we were dismantling, we were dismantling the company and breaking into sections and selling off sections whilst crazy inventions like pets.com and other boo.com and these other crazy companies that had, really had no reason to financial reason to exist because they didn't make it. Um, they were still going public, but we were sort of actually at that point selling things off already. And, you know, Prime Media bought some of the business, you know, something like the Spark Notes, which actually is quite fun, the 
from uh, that you get at Barnes and Noble was actually created out of the spark from that business, uh, which was one of our online properties. So, oh wow, it went into all these different areas, and uh, yeah, but it, look, a bubble is a bubble, right? <laughs> Eventually, you see it, and um, but it, it's also you know it was a it was a time of change, and it's interesting <laughs> that when you're in the center of the bubble, how fast everything develops around you. And maybe we're in one of those times now, you know, people often talk about how so many inventions happened in the second world war, you know, first and second world war, like penicillin and stuff, you know, there's this leap change mm. in technology. You're definitely seeing it. Then in the 1999 bubble, you know, I remember having discussions about, you know, the first company to get out of saying, Hey, we could have a wish list, right? Or we could have a persistent cart, shopping cart. And, you know, we were coding our own stuff. Some of the other people were using some of the outside software. Yeah. But basically within six months, everybody had it, right? So that difference of two months was a big deal. Yeah. Um, and it felt like, you know, and often you see a lot of that innovation coming. And then basically, you know, towards 2002, three, the innovation slowed down. You know, there were still lots of good ideas, but there weren't as many anymore. And then, you know, and so the interesting thing now with COVID is we've just seen a leapfrog of innovation, you know, other just for no other reason that, you know, for example, us doing this through Zoom and, and, um, and the variety of video conferencing technologies, they've always been out there, but there's been a massive step up, right, in the way they're being used. Um, that's quite, you know, it's quite an exciting thing to go through. You know, having said that, I don't need to go through this every few years. <laughs> so if anybody wants to slow down the world a bit, <laughs> let us all get a bit of breath again, that would be cool as well. So. Hmm. Uh, so now let's talk about your entrepreneurial experience a little bit now that we are reset. So, um, so prescribed solutions, tell me a little bit about that experience with Dave. Uh, what led you to wanting to start your own company? It sounds like that was an ambition potentially for a while. Um, mm -hmm. but you know, what led you to want to start that? Why the customized skincare space? Um, and then ultimately you ended up exiting it. I'd love to know what, you know, what the decision-making process was like there. Um, that'd be great. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, look, prescribed solutions is a big, uh, a big part, you know, sort of creating a business, as you know, is, sort of, is you know, it's a fundamental, it's sort of a life changing event. I get my, yeah. my wife, Jake jokes because, um, I still have, you know, I've still got my, uh, sort of photos of, all, of about the 12 products we have. They're hanging in their bedroom and the ceiling. You know? <laughs> and, uh, so she's, you know, so it's, it's sort of that close. Right. Um, it was a, you know, my business partner, David May at that time, um, you know, I met him, he was doing some consultancy, wanted me to help him on the consultancy of basically the medical aesthetic market. And sort of, we came up, had this beautiful idea about, you know, sort of putting a skincare to go with the procedures. And I sort of together with him sort of really developed this, this idea of, um, this new company I and mean, it had different names it was called total solutions then prescribed solutions and um and interestingly you know it had two different pushes like the first thing was we thought there's a need for a product which goes so well with the aesthetic procedures that are happening in medical offices and that's with the way we really built the line and secondly hey there's actually quite this interesting thing about being able to customize them so different patients getting different products by the doctors or the nurse sort of changing them. And, you know, when we, once we launched, you know, this is one of those things, we would have betted that the first former was what everybody wanted. It turned out that, you know, you couldn't sell anything in that way, no resonance. 
but everybody was excited about the customization. And it was a very iterative, you know, the first levels of customization were a bit like a dispenser where you put a few drops of this and that into the product. And Mm -hmm. it was good, but we realized that it was way too complicated. And doctors who were not necessarily, you know, they're not taught exactly what ingredients do, right? That's what cosmetic scientists do and chemists, um, that they didn't want to do it. So we created these boosters, and a bit like Jamba Juice, I think, is the way you think about it. You <laughs> had a product, it was a small product, you'd unscrew the lid, you take a booster, maybe extra firming or extra brightening or acne control, you pour those extra three mil in it, put it in, put it together, shake it up, and then there was a custom label which went on it and said, this has been created for, you know, for Mrs. Smith by Dr. Johns, you know, that sort of thing. And, um, and you know, use it twice a day. So it was really interesting because everybody wants something customized, but the issue is the difficulty of getting something customized turns most people off. Right? You want an expert to make it perfect for you, but if you... But if the expert, you know, if, if they ask you a hundred questions in order to get it perfect for you, you're like, you know what, this is too much. Yeah, so it's, it's just really, not worth it. yeah. So it's an interesting thing. But the medical industry is where we did. We you now built over time to about 500 doctors across the country, and some of them abroad. Um, but it started small, right? It started small, and and what was so unique about that time as well, I think we realized how, like the previously things that were only possible to big companies started to become available to us. Um, you know, whether it's the software, you know, your QuickBooks is just as good as an ERP system for most company, you know, companies of that size. Um, but it was also the cosmetic chemists, right? The commerce, over the years, the big companies had outsourced all their cosmetic chemists. So I suddenly had access to the same cosmetic chemist that was making some of these prestige, extremely expensive and extremely widely distributed lines. And they could do, um, I had the same suppliers, it's the same sort of, this uh, logistics facility was similar as well. The testing lab was the same. So you were basically in this virtual hub where you were sort of accessing all the things that over multiple years, big companies has outsourced, um, all that consulting talent, all that production and and operational talent. And uh, so it was really quite impressive that, you know, you could operate like a big company when we were only maybe about 15 people. Wow, fifteen! I didn't. I mean, I hadn't known the headcount numbers already. That's uh, that's pretty cool that you're able to accomplish that across such a small group. And it was, yeah. I mean, right at the beginning, it was three of us, right? Yeah, <laughs> so, of course. I mean, we were two when kitchen, we first started. So. And I think the kitchen. I was living in a, a beautiful rented flat at the time in um, in New York, just off Fifth Avenue. And uh, you know, I'm sure that the kitchen counter still has the has the Exacto knife cuts <laughs> from where we. <laughs> Well, we were cutting out the labels, you know, we just basically used a you know, color laser printer printed on good high waterproof Avery stock and then just cut it out because that was not that fundamental to the business, right? It wasn't about mm-hmm. packaging. You know, I needed a good label, I could, you know, laid it out in Illustrator and then printed it out and then cut them. And, and then once we got to bigger runs, that led you get really far. Right? And so we launched the I think the funding that we did for to launch the company was about a hundred thousand dollars or something and then when once we got there we started getting customers we knew it was good we, we had repeat customers one of our early customers was uh, dr patricia wexler and pat wexler was awesome right she's been behind so many big you know, ranging from calvin klein to the bath and body works and all this sort of she's had her own line and she could read it and she looked at the ingredients and her eyes lit up and she loved the concept and she was one of our biggest supporters she was, I think, a customer number two or three. And 
suddenly you know, she came on and within a week I had 10 more, right? <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> everyone's, oh, well, I'll, Pat Wex was doing it. I'll do it. So that was like one of these really lucky sort of early, early breaks that we ended up getting. And so that sort of led to quite a good, you know, a good progression. Yeah. I mean, I think luck plays a big role. I think at the same time you want to make her a repeat customer or not, right? Not a one-time kind of lucky in the bag customer. So maintaining those relationships over time is pretty critical. Um, and then, you know, obviously you sold the business. I read that that was a really hard thing and, you know, but you kind of focused on hmm. uh, ensuring that the new owners would take care of the existing staff. And it sounds like it's still around, right? Is that, is that the case? Yeah, they, they, yeah, they do. They continue to sell, um, you know, some of the new innovations actually were things that we had helped put together before we left and said, Hey, look, you know, one day you're going to want to have an innovation. Here's a product. Then we called it no cream, no sugar. And it was uh, <laughs> a great an anti-glycation product. You know, all our products had fun names as well, right? We body of knowledge was this wonderful slimming cream. Um, Bolt of lightning was our brightening product, for example, you know, and, um, and so, yeah, but the new owners, uh, you know, took it over and, um, and, you know, and ran with it. It's Ferndale Labs. It's sort of a pharmaceutical company out of Ferndale, Michigan. So, um, and a lot of our, you know, some of the salespeople who used to work for us, um, you know, went on and became salespeople of the year, sort of in the new bigger organization, which was good. And that transition, we needed scale at some point. We needed much more scale. And, and you know, the people who were willing to give the funding for the scale wanted to own the business. So, we, so that was sort of the way that, you know, what really pushed us to to make the step and say, okay, it's time. It's time to do that and then move on. Not easy, but it was a good step. For sure. Is that is that what drew you to benefit after that? Was kind of seeing what, like, what does a business that exists at scale look like and kind of pulling those levers. Um, is that what drew you there? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I didn't really know what I was getting into and benefit. I think <laughs> that, um, I've been looking, I've been, you know, doing my own thing. I've been, you know, been running it. And um, I think uh, it was six months in or six months after the sales, you know, I started, I found sort of some opportunities found me, I found them the sort of thing. And, and, just the more I looked into it, the more I liked it. There was a quirk, there's a quirkiness to benefit, which is interesting. Um, you know, I always say the F and benefit stands for fun and quite, you know, which is was always <laughs> as good. And, and there was like sort of, it was a confusing brand when I got there, I guess I felt, um, people didn't really know if it was makeup or skincare. Um, you know, it was products for the beautiful product. Dr. Feelgood is a great product that was out at that time and others. And, but people were like, okay, I didn't know how to categorize it. And, you know, I think I was lucky, right? So went into again. You know, you have to. Sometimes you can try and choose good, make good choices, but you also have to be. Um, you know, the, the the risk you take has to also work in your favor. And um, you know, when I when we started, uh, when the when the momentum started building at Benefit, I think what I liked is like we had made a couple of risky decisions. We'd shut down a large part of our department store network, for example. Uh, it was quite a sweeping thing we did. But then we also said, look, it's time to to brand this company. And so with the, particularly for the launch of their real um, yep. mascara it was the first time we decided that that was an opportunity to actually tell people what we were about. And at that time, and, um, and it worked, it was like a first time that we could have a different conversation um, in that the product wasn't that complex anymore that you, 
needed to spend all your discussion or the, you know, the limited amount of time you had to say something, you didn't have to explain just what the product did. So suddenly we had a product where you could actually talk about more of a feeling, more of something a jovial, sort of a wink, wink, like they're real sort of thing. And, and that was sort of very releasing. And that, you know, very quickly because of the power we put behind that the thought we put behind that, you know, that became the number one selling mascara in America. And suddenly nobody questioned anymore where the benefit was a makeup company. Um, uh, yeah. And it was like, you know, we weren't the category, so we didn't have these debates with buyers, like who you, <laughs> who's your buyer, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Way. And, and so fortunately it was a lot of good follow-up and, and a great team and, and some of the very early social efforts as well. Right. Which, which, you know, a lot of people were involved in, but, um, you had to take, um, you had to have that edge where you're not you want to do something amazing. And I think most entrepreneurs have that, right? They realize that if I'm just plain vanilla, I haven't got a business. It doesn't work that way. I can be plain vanilla in a big company and probably get mm -hmm. away with it in yep. a small, you know, and Gene and Jane Ford, the founders of Benefit, you know, I love the story, for example, you know, they had a store, there wasn't enough traffic. So, you know, they take some chalk and they do an outline on the, on the pavement as though somebody died there and put some, put some sort of rope around it. <laughs> and when everybody walks by, my God, what's happened? What's happened? They basically say, no, uh, yeah, this is awful, awful. But you know what you should do? Do you know this product? And then walk them into the store. <laughs> so it's like that craziness and fun, you know, and the sort of like and surprising people with fake hits and stuff. And and I think that's still true. And it's still true in the Internet. And to do it in an authentic way and a non and also a respectful way that you're not insulting, you know, you're not insulting to people you shouldn't be insulting to and all that sort of, but still not losing your edge, um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, was, was a very um, a good formula in the end, you know, and it was true to the business. It always been true to the business. I mean, Gina Jane Paul, when they got the CW award, they sang their acceptance speech, right? Oh my so, gosh. So not a lot of founders do that. And that was nice. And so, you know, we could run with that and, and it, and it resonated because people in a sea of blandness on social media that can easily happen and a sea of me too, you know, some things would step out and, uh, well, if you don't and, stand for anything, then you stand for nothing, right? Like, yeah. And it's, and, and there's danger, right? Cause social media is so, it's so aggressive. It was at that time as well. You know, I remember sort of working with the, like, there was a website called Jezebel. I don't know if it's still around, but it was just like, I, think a, so. I know it what just, it is. Yeah. It was just a site for, for very hurtful comments. And, you know, you mm -hmm. sort of got in there and you, and I, you know, I think what happens to people, a lot of our colleagues and, and I worry about this in our teams and social media that they get, you know, that, that there's hurtful stuff out there. And every time somebody says something slightly hurtful or says, Oh, I don't like what you're doing. You know, it makes you one step less edgy. It makes you one step less, you know, it maybe makes you, it rounds you out, right? It takes off that edge by definition. And sometimes you end up losing all your edge. Now, if you know where your edge needs to be, then you can let those topic, you can take it in and you can sort of make it just make your edge sharper because you know where you're going. But if you're not careful, it can also dull you and, and that balance in social media has been something which has really has actually been quite hard for the years. And maybe one of the things that the big company has eluded big companies and less so the small companies have got less, you know, maybe have a different risk profile. Um, yeah. Maybe why some of the small companies end up sort of suddenly sort of coming out in front. I'd never heard of it described that way. 
with the kind of the dulling of the edge, right? Like these, because you do as a business, you know, we've been in business for I think coming on eight years and there's times where like people challenge you and times where people disagree and times where people get very mm -hmm. aggressive, um, whether it's in, uh, you know, social media comments or an angry email or whatever. And, mm -hmm. you know, the tendency is to say, hey, let's never let that happen again. Right. Let's make sure that we put policies in place that this somebody never gets us upset again. When the reality is that it could just be that, you know, um, their values or their views don't necessarily align with yours. And that's okay, mm. right? Um, like it's okay to have different opinions on things, even if those opinions sometimes are expressed really aggressively. And I think you have to also foster, you know, the important thing in an organization, which we try very much, is to foster a place where the, the teams feel okay to tell general manager or the sort of me and others, you know, I don't agree with this, you know, yep. I think we yep. shouldn't do this. And then we still have, you know, so because, because otherwise you're also, you know, then you're, cause it's very easy to have so much edge. You haven't got, you know, not listening to anybody either. Right. Yep. And, yep. and if you want to be risky and if you want to push the edge and push out and push, push the envelope, not really edge, but push the envelope further and do fun things and creative things, whichever unique view, um, you know, it's it's really important to have like people around you who can say, you know, this is a like you might not like to hear this, but there's a pothole over there, and yeah. they are going to hate mm -hmm. you for what you do. Yeah, and you're much better off when you've got people who tell you where the potholes are. And you know, I'm lucky that at Domologica we have that. I mean, people talk back to me all the time, and it's excellent. Um, I'd say that you know, a real good example of you know maybe an organization which could have done that was, you know, um, JC Penny under Ron Johnson. Yep. There was such a culture of fear that, you know, from my perspective of what I was seeing at the time, the problem was that, you know, I knew of issues were happening at SIJCP or at JC Penny and warehousing issues. I think before he did because mm. nobody would tell him. <laughs> yeah. Cause they'd been color coded cause they're going to be depending on when they were going to get fired. Right. And so <laughs> the, you know, and so this sort of idea of as well of what's an organize, you know, an organization has to, if you can't have a, you can't have a discussion at home and if you, you lose your temper and if you can't keep that level headedness at that, there's no way that you can have, you know, a real opinion outside either because you're not going to be, you know, it's just not going to work. Um, and so, yeah, probably comes also back to this idea, you know, when I came to Dermalogica, one of the big things I said, you know, my av the average tenure of people working my direct reports was 13 years oh wow um and a lot of those people are still here which is wonderful and and, and we've got added some new people to the team but it's like a lot of that and you know the question is if you've got a lot of seniority is that good for moving fast or is that is that no slow because everybody's risk of us i think it's actually really good for moving fast mm -hmm. because because assuming those people have the right mindset which obviously is an assumption which they do then you can move fast because you know where the potholes are if you put a total new team, yeah, they're all nobody. Every, nobody's risk averse, but they also yeah. they also they don't know, trip they up and break their legs those, every time. Yeah. yeah, 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 absolutely. I it's funny. I I don't know. I appreciate the way that you describe things. I think the idea of potholes is just a really good one. We also not tenured of thirteen years, but a lot of our senior team has been with us for quite a while. And so you can come in and say like, "Hey, we should do this." It's like, no, 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 no. Like we've run into that before. This was what we learned from it. Um, you know, it's, it actually goes back to, I don't, well, let's move forward. I was going to talk about kind of how I, I'm still 
I have to imagine the business, the department store business for benefit was fairly big that you decided to move on from, which is a, a big decision, but I don't, I want to move forward. Let's talk. So let's talk about dermological a little bit. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, obviously coming a wise into a, move, a fabulous brand. Yeah. <laughs> and if you haven't used it, use it. It's incredible. <laughs> this is the way your skin will look afterwards. It's incredible. Uh, absolutely. Um, I don't use it. So use it to look like Aurelian. Um, so, uh, so tell me about that. So you came in, obviously new brand, exciting brand, um, you know, coming into an existing management team is, you know, is difficult, like you mentioned. Um, what were some of the initial challenges that you guys, that you had to come over when you, when you first came in? Like what were uh, some of the big kind of changes that needed to be made? Or maybe it was more just coming in and learning at first. Tell me about that process. What's it like to come in as the, the CEO of a fairly large established team? I, look, I think the first thing, you know, as you start as a CEO, the point is, again, you have to have, you know, you have to have a point of view. Right? I, within a yeah. day of getting there, people are asking for your opinion. And if you don't have, if you don't have a structure, if you don't have something that, you know, sort of the way you like to work, be it in the way you like to have your P&L meetings or the way you like to, you know, see the results of the previous week, um, it's very disconcerting for people, right? So sort of having existing systems you can be- go back to and say, no, I've got a very clear view of where, like how I'd like to gather my information, for example, is an important thing. Um, when you start, you know, so that sort of helps with some of the first days. And look, I mean, in the beginning, you have to listen. And uh, Dermalogica is fundamentally started out as an education company in like 1983, right? So three years, all we did was like teach skin therapists how to improve the quality of the treatments they were doing and it was only after three years that we needed products to go with the teaching and that's when Dermalogica was created mm-hmm. and so that sort of therapist education led is still so huge for the business we teach a hundred thousand therapists a year and that's a you know that's a huge um you know commitment in terms of you know helping people develop the skills so that they can take care of their lives um and you know, that was all very new to me to start with. The professional side of the business also was very new to me, right? The professional side is means the back, um, you know, the products that you supply to somebody, to a therapist, skin therapist, that she uses in the treatment. And, you know, the dynamics of that was different. And, you know, honestly, you know, I, I made some mistakes, uh, you know, very early. It took me a while to work out which the mistakes were. You know, it's not that mm-hmm. easy. You know, I de-emphasized, for example, opening some new accounts, but which was not right. I shouldn't have done that. There was, you know, it, the lifeblood of the professional industry is bringing on new accounts because it's an industry with natural churn where you lose like 15% of your people on an annual basis due to a variety of reasons, right? They, they leave the industry, they you know, you know and, and things like that. So... You have to have that blood. And if you sort of throttle it back, you can get into trouble. And so, you know, that was one of the things I sort of had to learn. And, and you know, and sort of hopefully I didn't do too much damage in the time before I w- realized what was going wrong. Um, the and But I think, you know, some of the things that I did bring in, which, you know, fortunately worked out was innovation. Right? There wasn't the pace of innovation. Like the, there's Innovation has always been beautiful Dermalogica, you know, the 2001 micro, daily microfoliant store, one of my favorite products in the world, right? You know, and something you should be using. <laughs> rice powder, it brightens nicely. Use it in the shower, it's pretty simple. Um, that's a beautiful product, for example, and that was there. But, but you know, the cadence of innovation that people are expecting, you know, four, we do 4A launches a year, and that was a commitment I think I made with, with a team together a few months after starting, and the team delivered it. You know, it sort of caused a huge 
sea change in everybody's effort. But it was interesting that it galvanized the, it galvanizes the organization as well, right? Because you need things to keep an organization like any other biological thing that you've got. They need there needs to be things that keep the clock going. And and if you have these big events, these big things that happen on a certain cadence, the business just keeps moving because they know, okay, I've got a deadline there, I need to move. And and innovation is really powerful like that. And you know, the four A launches we do like that a year you know, honestly do keep the company grow, growing. And at first it was a global thing, you know, global meaning just the global creation group, but then it became global in the US. And then, you know, by about the fourth innovation or something, we managed to marry it up. So the whole world now churns on that same cycle. Um, and then and it sort of just keeps keeps the momentum, keeps the and keeps excitement. And so we're excited about the next town hall and like, what's the product going to be? And we don't always tell everybody in advance. <laughs> and, you know, we tell them on the day and then they get it on the day and they're like, yeah, and they go home. And if it's Valentine's day, then they share it with their partner yeah. and maybe their partner, they get some, you know, benefit points there as well. That's cool. And, you know, so that's the sort of thing that, you know, and, and innovation was about 3%. It's more than 15% at the moment, right? So that is a big difference. And that's 12-month innovation. That's a high number. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. I think um, I like the idea of having kind of a cadence there. Obviously, I think it's pretty consistent across industries. Um, you know, that the the phrase that I like. So one of the things that I thought was really interesting in like listening to your different interviews and reading the different articles was kind of the general approach, right? So I think in one of the interviews you said that you, um, the word you use uh, far too often is to iterate relentlessly, right? Oh, yes. so, so to continue <laughs> to change over time. Um, yeah. It reminds me a lot of, if you've heard uh, Jeff Bezos' uh, Blue Origin, is step-by-step okay. -step ferociously, right? Mm -hmm. um, Talk to me about that. Like what, what caused you to, why do you say that all the time? Like what, what has led you to that being the conclusion that like this is the way that you should really operate if you're trying to run a business? Talk to me about that, that kind of concept. Well, I mean, we started by, you know, the, the origin of it actually came from starting by saying, realizing that some things we need to refocus, whether it was like focusing on sell out more than sell in or, um, making sure that account managers were getting, you know, that were in the organization. And so people were taking care of important clients. And it was very clear whose responsibility was. And once we started sort of defining the ways of working, we realized that, you know, it needed a framework. And we created something called the guiding principles. And there's five of them. And, and one of them is actually iterate relentlessly, um, which is really because we have this idea that we want to go into all these new areas. Mm -hmm. And you know, we're not going to get it perfect the first time. And like, you know, this, and maybe, you know, the minimum viable product sort of ideas or something that some people use, but basically sort of going after that and saying, okay, let me not try and go aim for that massive end solution, which, you know, I'm going to get wrong anyway. And it doesn't happen <laughs> for, it doesn't happen for six months to a 12 months. And so by in the time it comes about, I haven't learned anything because I've been waiting for the great grand reveal. Um, I have to say that there's like with time, though, we've actually adapted. The iterate relentlessly is still true, but there's two things that adapted there. One of them is yeah. we've changed it to compare relentlessly mm. because I was once in a meeting and basically we're talking about something we were doing and I, you know, the, 
the team had sort of said, well, you know, last season we did this and this season we're going to do this and next season we do this. And I'm like, it's like you're just changing from purple to green to blue. It's like, why do you keep changing? And they looked at me like, <laughs> and I said, well, you told us to keep iterating. It's one of our principles. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, but you're meant to be like comparing and making it better, right? And so, so I realized like, oh, you know, no, I haven't been, dis- you know, it wasn't quite what I was. So we changed to compare relentlessly, which is, yeah. okay, throw two, I- two items out there, see which one's better, move forward with that one, throw another two. And, you know, com- by comparisons, you know, you basically have a test and somebody has to make a decision, which is important because it's very mm-hmm. easy to launch something and not have to make a decision. Like mm-hmm. you just put a test out there and at the end, did it go well? Oh yeah, yeah, it went well. And there's no decision because <laughs> you're not saying is A better than B. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So yeah. that's something that sort of changed with time. The other thing that we change sometimes is actually that before you start iterating relentlessly, you sometimes have to test to make sure that your hypothesis of what you're just about to embark on is the right one. And it's sometimes called pretotyping is what we call it. There's a book actually about pretotyping out as well. We worked with some Stanford people to, to sort of help us to do it, but basically faking it. So you yeah. fake things. And so a lot more now, you know, a good example was we were deciding, you know, very small, uh, biolumin C, wonderful vitamin C, another core product that you should be using on your daily regimen. Connor, but so <laughs> we have vitamin C, biolumin C in a one ounce. It's doing exceptionally well out you know, more than our expectations. And we're like, okay, do we need a two ounce size? And there's a bit of a debate, you know, it's going to be $139. Is that too much? And, uh, you know, so we did, we just, just faked it, right? Yeah, and we, yeah, so yeah. before we spent four months developing this new bottle and having it made and all that sort of stuff, we went out, we just started selling it. And if somebody bought it, this only happened for three days. If anybody bought it, We'd say, look, sorry, we're out of stock. We'll send you two of the small ones. And we'll give you a GWP for free. So everybody was thrilled. <laughs> like anybody who actually <laughs> bought it that day was happy. But we had actual numbers of how many people were going to be willing to buy the, this one. And we just faked it for a day. Um, and, you know, so that's another part of this iterate. Because once you're into the iteration, you're not going to let go of your baby anymore, right? No, no, it's no. It's like it's my, it's you're my precious. It's There's my a precious. There's a sunk cost feeling. Yes, exactly. It's like, oh, yeah. I'm not going to do it. Yeah, it's my precious, right? We're in the Hobbit here now. And then they, you know, they're going to, and so in order to make sure that somebody's precious is actually precious, you need to make, you know, sort of get rid of the real stinkers of the ideas earlier, you know, and then maybe sort of help up to shape your thinking earlier. And then, you know, once you've embarked on it, you still don't know where the hell you're going to go, but you can keep iterating. And it's fun. Well, it it reminds me just a lot of, I I think, I feel like that's a skill that you learn as an entrepreneur, right? Because Mm -hmm. you just, you have to do tests constantly because you don't know what's going to work and what's not going to work. I think um, you'd really get along with this guy, Moyes. Uh, He founded Native Deodorant. Um, Yeah, so he sold it to Procter & Gamble for $100 million within two and a half years. And Mm -hmm. the thing that I really liked that he did, and that I think e-commerce enables or direct-to-consumer e-commerce is they did, I think it was 24 formulations in their first 18 months. Um, And so then what they would do, right, is they'd say like, okay, um, and I'll tell you, so they say, okay, here, we're going to use this 1% milled whatever in this and, you know, half a percent in this. And then they'd sell it and then watch repurchase rates, right? Like what are the Mm -hmm. repurchase rates? Because when they first released the product, their repurchase rates were around 20, 25%. Um, He's like, that's too low, right? We can't make it work at a 25% repurchase rate. And so they just kind of changed and changed and changed formulations until they got to about a 50% repurchase rate, which 
doesn't sound like anything wild, but you know, it, it, it doubles your efficiency for every marketing dollar you put into it, um, which is a big deal. And, and I think this look, that's sort of what you just described there is a very modern way of, you know, of getting consumer sentiment, right? Which is yep, what's yep. interesting because the danger with all this data out there is that I just focus, focus group myself out of existence. Yep. You know, I ask 300 people, what do you think? Do you think this is better than this? It's dangerous. It's dangerous. Does it really work? Do people just tell you what they want, what they think you want to hear? And is their opinion that good? Right. You know, yep. Steve Jobs didn't, didn't sort of throw the two versions of the L throw the iPad onto the, uh, or the iPhone onto the market and say, I wonder, you know, if the focus group likes it and yeah. just, you know, he sort of had a vision and went for it. And I think this idea of like, but you do want to get consumer feedback. And so having variations and, and actually, you know, if somebody puts their credit card on once and if they put the credit card on twice, which is what you're saying they did, yeah, that's good data, right? That is exceptionally yeah. good data, and I'm, yeah, I'm glad. I mean, it sounds like it worked, right? Hundred million sounds good. Yeah, I mean, it was good it to worked hear out about well. <laughs> yeah, they're it's a super impressive company. Um, the other thing, I, I think, the reason that you reminded me of him was the labeling, right? So they did. Mm. It was always the same label, and they could basically print them themselves, but mm. just to do really small batch runs, testing different uh, different varieties, uh, it was a big big part of their their success early on. That's you know that's you know coming back to the prescribed solutions ideas. But you know not only did we make the labels, but we also inkjet printed, you know the the sales brochures because I didn't need that many sales brochures. Really. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Know, so on my inkjet, like overnight, the thing would be coming <laughs> out. You cut it out, you fold it, and you walk into a meeting. So basically, you know, the first ones literally there was only one ever version, and it was given to the doctor. But you could see, and then they'd read it, and you'd sort of they'd come up and they'd say, "What's this thing on page five? That picture doesn't really look. That doesn't look like a good study. Like, is that right?" <laughs> Yeah, And then, you know, but because you haven't sort of taken the big company approach, which is I'm going to order 5,000, Yeah, you know, by the next, the, the sales call you have three days later, you've got the new version. And of so course. by the time you get, you know, I think we probably went through 18 versions of sales, of our sales literature before we did the first run of like a couple of thousand. And and so when we were, we didn't lock ourselves in until like, you know, a bit like this, you'd done many things. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. So the challenge in our companies now is, you know, how do you do that when you're running, you know, we're about 1,200 people, but we're 5,000 people in the Dermalogica a tribe when you can include the distributors who are dedicated to Dermalogica, you know, how do you keep that going in in a business and then, you know, you, where you now have to sort of communicate to people, is this, is this an alpha and a beta or is this the final thing? Do I want mm -hmm. feedback or is feedback passed? You know, so you have those sort of additional things when it's on a grander scale, but it's all, it doesn't mean it's less relevant. So one of the things that I've noticed about the different businesses that you've been at, um, whether it's Dermalogica, Benefit, with your brow bar, uh, Prescribed Solutions, is that kind of service and product um, are almost always mm -hmm. intertwined. Um, and I noticed earlier in one of the interviews you said that loyalty uh, is much higher when somebody you know has both service and product connected to a company. Obviously, the service component tends to be kind of lower mm -hmm. margin um, inherently. Um, and I know it's not the same at every company that you've been at, but talk to me about your your philosophy there because it just seems too consistent to be <laughs> an accident. Uh, well, look, yeah. I mean, you have to 
you have to think of why somebody, why, you know, why a customer wants to spend time with you, right? And it's a, you know, services, you know, this rich experience that people are expecting now from a product, it, you know, if you add a service to it, it's much richer, right? And there's this loyalty in services, indeed, because, you know, th things change, right? You're, you know, when your skincare, you want a skincare routine and, you know, and it's like eating well, it's good, you know, when you've eaten well, you're feeling good for a while. You stop eating well after a while, you sort of lose the effect. In services, it's much the same. Okay. It's like you have the good service, your skin, you know, you've got that extra pep in your skin. And yes, um, and then with time, you say, yeah, it's time for me again, right? And so that's that's causing yep. loyalty. And, you know, and the, and the products there are a bit of a souvenir as well to remind you every, so, you know, every morning, oh, yes, you know, maybe I should go back to... Uh, get another, you know, another facial yeah. treatment at, you know, the, the dermatological skin, uh, skin therapist. Um, I also, you know, th but there's many ways, you know, to see it. One of them is, so there's loyalty of it, but at the same time, it's also, you know, strategically, I just don't think there's going to be businesses offline which don't have a service element. Right? And we've been saying this, I think, at the mm -hmm. where Daily Conference a few years ago already, that, you know, that without services, like offline's dead. It's just a mediocre version of of online and you know this time that we're in at the moment is particularly interesting from that perspective because all the big companies are basically finding that the way to get back into business in their physical locations is by stripping out all those service elements that are the sort of reason for them to exist yeah. and i get it because their businesses yeah. are so substantial and, you know, you have to take care of the base before you can do the frills, so to speak. Um, you know, if I had a hotel and a massage spa in it, I'd be more concerned about getting my beds open before I'm thinking about what do I need to do to make the massage safe, right? And in much that same way, but they're pulling yeah. this out. And whether you start talk about um, service in terms of client, you know, human connection in client interaction of what you need um, um, or whether you're talking about it in terms of an actual facial treatment where somebody touches you, you know, there is, that's what people are coming for, you know, and people are longing that touch. And after, you know, safer at home, you know, people, that, that human connection, it's, it's a, it's a biological reason and thing that we are looking for and needing. And so, um, you know, as I think of the different parts of our business, there needs to be human connection in everything, whether it's digital or online, you know, online, offline, wherever. But yeah, of course, mm -hmm. you know, there's this physical service is such a rich thing that people want. Um, you know, that's why gravitate, you know, we gravitate to it. And yes, benefit did browse. Um, I, I, you know, the Dermalogicus Pro Skin 30s, the, the peels you can get are absolutely spectacular. Um, the education you get whilst you're getting a service, you know, is, is second to none. Um, and, you know, so you can feel that somebody's taking care and advising you at the same time. And so for me, you know, at this point, you know, I'd say about 75 to 80% of my time is actually dealing with how we can get our 20,000 professional skincare therapist salons back working, right? This is mm -hmm. huge. It's existential for them. Yeah. It's a, you know, because everybody's like, ah. <laughs> um, governments are scared, yeah. rightly so. So that's, you know, what I write at the beginning. I talked a bit about clean touch certification and this idea of 
okay, what are the principles? And if I follow those, I can actually do it safely. So like actively saying, okay, you know, pre-screen the right people, make sure that people are really high risk groups don't come in, make sure everybody has a mask. That when you have the treatment and one person takes off the mask because they're having a facial treatment, the other person has a mask and a shield and a clean apron and no more blankets. And, you know, this is the way we, um, what we do to test us. This is what we do when we, um, and we wash our hands 15 to 30 times an hour. Um, and so with all of that is what we've been focused on. And we've actually just brought out a bunch of products to go with it as well. So, you know, like, as far as I know, we brought out the first face and body sanitizer, which is a product that we sell mm. to professionals um, that they can spray, you know, spray before they touch the body or the face, um, much the way you would use a hand sanitizer as a, as a substitute if you don't have a sink. Right? We always prefer sinks. but um, So it's an interesting, you know, this whole industry. It's like uh, the service, you know, services are are something I think that are only going to become more important. They've had a bit of a setback in COVID. Um, There's no, there's no doubt. It's like the number of people. What's really exciting for me is that the people who are pushing forward in services are no longer the big boxes, but they are the small players. And so this could actually lead to a resurgence of the local community a resurgent of the local high street of the small employee owned business and small chains. And that's really exciting for me because it tends to me to, to me to mean that the future is not going to be one of, you know, these big driving down an Avenue and you don't know if you're in Cleveland or in San Antonio, um, but going down a street where there's a personal touch and it's exciting and it's more fun and, and it's more real and it's more human. So, so the service area really does that you know that's where you get it from as you can tell i'm a bit passionate it's probably why i keep doing it (laughs) i know i know it's great it's uh it's just funny it's it's really interesting on my end you know doing these podcasts and really diving into an individual in a way that you know i don't think you could have done 10 years ago just because there's so much information now available online um, and then getting to ask the real questions, right? Like ask, I'm like, this seems like a pattern here. Is this a real pattern? Like, am I imagining something? Um, I think to your point on the small businesses, one of the things I was amazed with is uh, there's a company I'm connected with uh, or a company that I know that's got different lines of business. So they've got their kind of small boutique business. Mm-hmm. They've got their department store business and they've got, you know, e-commerce. And what was interesting was obviously the department store business is down 40, 50%, Mm -hmm. right? Or more. Um, But the uh, boutique business is actually Mm -hmm. up, you know, 5% year over year. And it's like, what? Like, how is that possible? And it's like, well, these small business owners are doing whatever they need to, right? They're going to drive the products to somebody's Mm -hmm. house. They're going to do the service. They're going to go the extra mile to make sure that they're really, really clean. So the, you know, and they're friends with these people so that they're more comfortable kind of coming into their homes to do and, you know, feel safe to do these kinds of treatments. Um, It was just really cool Yeah, those numbers that you're quoting are actually, you know, I was seeing as well. I mean, overall, our business, you know, took a, it did take sort of a real kick in the shins from, you know, COVID and this whole shutdowns right major um but you know when you see and overall we're really happy that we're growing versus line like may was growth over last year and so we're still and we were galloping ahead now we're growing ahead but you know we'll get it back but it is the when you analyze it um in the professional industry it's the it's the owner operators who are continue to buy because they're not, mm-hmm. you know, they're not willing to give it up, and we've given them tools like virtual consultation, which then, 
you know, we've upped the affiliate margin so that they can sell through our website and get a very good, healthy commission. And we've done all these sort of things to help them. But in the end, it wasn't us. It was them. They did it. And they, you know, they just that they continue and they got that that impulse and it's, it is good to see and and something we really have to support and you know as we sort of think again about george you know uh george floyd and all you know what's happening in and all the looting that's happening you know one of the things we've been talking about today is how can we again support these psts who've had their had their stores or their locations damaged by looters and mm-hmm. you know in, in yep. the same way that we've supported psts um who had their locations damaged by floods and in Houston a few years ago. So we need to do things like that because it really is something that we want to see, you know, prosper. And I think everybody will be happier. You know, when we're all doing services again, the world will be a happier place. That's not my prediction, right? <laughs> <laughs> For sure. So let's talk really quickly about the kind of influencer mm-hmm. space. Um, I know that we're running short on time, but still wanted to ask, answer those questions. So I think you made a decision to kind of put some priority behind that a few years ago when we first Mm met. Um, And obviously, we've seen it reflected in terms of the results, right? So kind of continuing to move up the list over time. Um, What was the decision making there? Like what made you decide to invest in the space and maybe describe a little bit about your approach and how you think about it? Um, I mean, you know, the question is, where do people find out about what you're doing, right? And so it seemed quite obvious that like, you know, these areas of like working with influencers and you know is is an area that um is just in you know they're influencing a lot of people and the difficulty i guess is was was at first to understand really sort of the noise and the hype and you know some of the you know the tribe work that we did was basically like look i need to quantify something you know before emv existed it was yep. a, it was a bugger of a you know of a of a decision like did that work did that not work um I think, you know, as we move on and we keep going and, and sort of seeing the influence, you know, there's always this question about, you know, what your message is through the influencer as well as the reach, right? And that balance has been hard. Um, you know, we've got experts who deserve, they deserve to have millions of people listen to them when they talk about skincare. They know everything. They can explain it. They're incredible. But they don't have the reach because that's not their business. You know, that's not their business. Yep. That's not the way yep. you and, you know, we have some, you know, and the, and, and the inverse. So it's like, how do you bring those two together is really what we, we've done. And we work with like, in influencers at all different stages. Um, you know, everybody talks about authenticity. I think that's true. Um, you know, I'm a bit mm-hmm. cynical. Some people talk about authenticity, but then say they won't get out of bed for a che- without somebody writing a check. I'm, <laughs> a bit concerned about <laughs> how they're defining authenticity, right? Um, you know, we've done things yeah, over the yeah. years where we basically try to look at, find people who were really gung-ho about Domologica, as they should be, before we ever, you know, before we approached them or before we they knew that we had any program like this and then try and work with them so that, you know, there was a base level of when they're, tra- they're talking from the heart a bit more than talking, from, you know, they'd just been introduced two weeks ago or something like that. So, you know, it it goes, I I like, I'm glad that that we've, you know, we've risen the ranks. I think there's, I mean, the real interesting thing for the next generation is like, you know, look, we're a brand of expertise and what does consumer education look like? And, and, and the issue with all this information on the web is some of it's excellent, but some of it is really shoddy. Right. And 
somebody yeah, sort of gets, of course. sometimes people get this thing that they believe it's circumstantial. It's not, it's not controlled. It's like, and then they just, they grab onto it and maybe it's the effect on, on some part of nature of a certain ingredient or whatever it is. And then they just grab onto it. And then that starts perpetuating itself as, as science. And, you know, the world isn't flat and their comments aren't right. And so, you know, it really is important and exciting to sort of say, okay, let's bring the expert back into this. And, mm-hmm. and you know, what does expertise mean? And, and somebody who does treatments on your skin and touches your skin knows more about what you really need, what really works, than people, a lot of people who speak, speak on a lot of podiums. And so this, you know, I think for me, the interesting thing is what we're doing now is that we're teaching, we've always taught how to do a treatment, right, to, to therapists that's since 1983. But we're actually in some of our digital platforms and with some of the influencers, we're trying to teach them to understand how to do a treatment and, mm-hmm. and maybe even have them do a treatment on a friend or do a treatment at themselves because it's DIY time, right? Everybody's baking at home, that sort of thing. And it's interesting that like when those conversations, the amount of education that goes across and people start understanding because they had to do it once on themselves is, is, is quite phenomenal. So, you know, so for us, some of the influencer work is moving towards more of this consumer education, which is a bit of a shift for the company away from the purely um, therapist education that we did in yesteryears. Um, but it's, but you know, it, it's an interesting, but it's a changing, uh, changing landscape. Absolutely. Well, I don't want to hold you any longer. We've had you for a very long time, longer than we should have been able to. So, but I want to thank you again for taking the time out and thank, uh, Dermalogica as a team for helping to coordinate as well as, you know, for lending your time during uh, a time when there is a lot going on, whether it's George Floyd or COVID, um, kind of uh, a particularly difficult time for a lot of people. So I really appreciate you taking the time out to, to help out uh, the listeners and um, and for oh, taking great. the time Thank to chat. Thank you, Connor. I'm humbled that you would spend an hour and a half talking about things I'm, my thoughts. So I really appreciate <laughs> it. Look, I, and um, you, you and your team have also done a lot for us. So I, you know, I'm glad to be able to give back just a small. And um, hopefully this will be interesting. And please, um, um, for the listeners, whether you realize there's a break, it's probably because Connor sort of cut out something particularly outrageous that I said. So. <laughs> no, no, no. Those are the best things. Uh, all right, all right. Have a great, uh, great rest of your day. Hit subscribe now. Earned by Tribe Dynamics. Tribe Dynamics unlocks your social media influencer community. Our platform not only tracks and measures your best influencer relationships, but discovers new influencers to grow your business through earned media. Get started with a demo today at tribedynamics.com. TribeDynamics.com